One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 361st episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Andrew Bourne and Brian Cates, both getting their own personal Just Shoot It podcast hats. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enloe. Today, we've got screenwriter Steve Desmond on the show. He's got a new film in theaters called Knock at the Cabin. It's directed by, you know, a little known director named uh, M. Night Shyamalan. I'm sure you've seen trailers and posters and hopefully even the movie. Steve is an old college buddy of mine. I couldn't believe it. Wowie zowie. He's got a movie in theater. So I thought, what a perfect excuse to have him on the show. He's had four different screenplays on the blacklist. He's a awesome writer, good pal. We have an awesome conversation. I think the thing that got me the most excited about this is that we talk a lot about the incremental success on this show, what it takes to have a long lasting career. Steve, like I said, he's had multiple movies on the blacklist. You know, he's been a working writer for quite some time. And this is the first produced credit that's in movie theaters. And he's been making his living as a screenwriter for years and years. I think it really just helps illustrate what the lifestyle is like, what it takes to be a writer, and hopefully a few tips and tricks on figuring out how to come to your own process and voice and craft a little faster. Totally. I really love this conversation. Steve is very smart, clearly a talented writer. He's written many, many scripts, which is cool. You know, it's definitely not an overnight success. It's great to hear kind of all the things he learned as he was getting to where he is today. And he gave us a really awesome hack that I can't wait for you to hear about of how he would get people all over Hollywood to read his scripts when he first started being a screenwriter without having any representation. So you got to listen to the episode to find out what it is, but I do not think you will be disappointed. So the film is uh, Knock at the Cabin. It's in theaters now. Before we hop into our conversation with Steve Desmond, Oren. Yes. Let's talk about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Just Shoot a Pod is a place where you can throw us a buck or two to support the show. Oh, I thought you were going to ask me what I've been up to. I did want to mention one thing real quick. We had an actor uh, named Melissa Haas on Instagram shout out that uh, actors should listen to our podcast. She said, mm. all the acting podcasts are amazing. But as actors, you got to listen to some of these filmmaking podcasts, like Just Shoot It. And I wanted to thank Melissa and tell her that she is a very smart actor. She's right. Yeah. Because, you know, you're teaching an acting class right now. And I subbed for you and we talked about this previously. But because I'm married to an actor, you're married to an Mm -hmm. actor. We know that it's not always about the most emotional performance. Sometimes we know that... Hey, if you give a slate that looks like you're not into it, we might not even really watch the rest of your audition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's knowing those things 
as an actor, knowing that it's not just about how invested you are in the performance, but in the entire package is super helpful. So everyone listen to Melissa Haas, H-A-A-S. Uh, she knows what she's talking about. Listen to her podcast. I guess I'm, I'm pitching to the wrong crowd. Yeah, already yeah. Listening. That's right. You're already listening, but tell your friends. Um, maybe you have an actor friend who would benefit from this. Uh, anyway, if you're enjoying a learning from us, <laughs> a learning from the podcast, learning from our guests, like a Steve Desmond, who we have on that, I guarantee you, if you listen to this episode, you will learn something. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a really good one. If that is something you find valuable, you should check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. It's a place where you can give us a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars. Uh, you can be like Andrew Bourne and Brian Cates and sign up at the $20 level. And then I will personally mail you a just shoot it hat. I think we should get some more hats. I think maybe we should go for a new design. Oh, and you're thinking you're saying we're going to retire the just shoot it design and that there will only only, only be, two be Yeah. The left? next two people to sign up at the $20 level will get the collector's item. I don't know how I feel about that. I know uh, making movies is hard as thinking about doing hoodies. I know. Oh, that's pretty good. Well, let's see what they do. If they do zip-up hoodies, we'll do non-zip-up. I like do, a zip-up hoodie. Don't you feel like that metal zipper sometimes that like gets mm. stuck on your hair so your yeah, baby gets but, stuck in it? Well, I don't want to like, if I'm too hot and I have to take the pullover hoodie off, I'm just showing my hairy belly to everybody inevitably and that's terrible. So with that mental image, Matt's <laughs> body parts, uh, you should listen to the last episode of Just Unit, the second part of our Working With Celebrities episode, because there's a really good story about Matt's butt in it. I, I forgot about that. I know. Um, I was like, did Matt want me to cut this out? I don't know. Uh, but I left well, it in. No, no, I, I said it on the show. It's okay. Anyhow, patreon.com slash Just Unit pod. Check it out. Most of the time, Noah edits the episodes and uh, that's what is keeping us going so um, yeah, that's where the patreon money goes to and thank you for keeping the show alive okay on that note here's the episode hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, hey, Steve Desmond. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I have uh, wanted you on the show for a long time. Yeah, I've been vetoing you maybe for six, seven <laughs> years. Just like, sorry, who? Hard no. Another Desmond? Um, uh, you know, we kind of we keep a list. We're reaching out to people and stuff. And literally the way that this episode happened is I was on my way somewhere. I was stopped on Highland and Franklin. And I look up at one of the big, big, giant billboards. It's basically the size of a of a building. And I say, I think to myself, oh, knock, knock at the cabin door. That's a new movie I haven't heard of yet. That's cool. And then I literally see your name <laughs> on the billboard. And I, I couldn't believe it, man. That's so exciting. Steve and I have known each other since college. Yeah. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, you 60 plus years. USC, yeah. Fight on, buddy. Um, Fight on. So, so exciting to have you on the show, man. Congrats. You've had many, many scripts do very, very well. Four? Four scripts on the blacklist? Is that right? Four scripts, yeah. Hell Including yeah, this man. one. Yeah. Hell yeah. So, Steve, congratulations. Welcome to the show. Yes. And congratulations on de- dethroning Avatar, too. <laughs> Avatar 2 was out for eight weeks before we quote unquote dethroned it. But, you know, yeah. take whatever victory over James Cameron you could get. Before we dig into everything, Steve, just give us the logline. Explain for people who aren't familiar uh, about what Knock at the Cabin Door is. Sure. So Knock at the Cabin is based on a novel called The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. And it's about this vacationing family who have four strangers show up at their cabin who claim they're there to stop the apocalypse. But to stop the apocalypse, the family has to choose to sacrifice one of their own, to kill one of their own family members. And at first, you just think these strangers are crazy. They're just zealots. But as the day goes on, um, world events start to happen that make you start to think they might actually be telling the truth and you're not quite sure which way it's going to go if, if they're just these crazy people or if they're actually harbingers who are trying to stop the apocalypse. And that's all I'll say for there. Yeah. I watched your short film Monsters that you wrote and directed. Oh, cool. Yeah. I loved it. And it has kind of uh, echoes of this idea. There's a lot of twists. Very M. Night Shyamalan of you. Was that part of, of kind of how you got into this movie as well you know it's funny it's almost like we're the most ignorant of our own work sometimes i didn't even see the correlation between those two until a friend of mine pointed it out like um two months ago and i was like oh yeah i guess there is some similarity one um thank you for bringing up monsters i'm it was a blast to make that one honestly had nothing to do with the other in this case um what got us this job was i say we i have a writing partner michael sherman um we had a spec script called On Your Doorstep. That was our first ever script sale and was kind of our sample at the time. And when the novel Cabin at the End of the World was, um, you know, uh, coming out, our script On Your Doorstep just served as a good tonal sample Mm -hmm. for adapting it. Um, 
I don't, I guess we had made monsters at that point, but that wasn't something um, that was used as like a, a sample piece. It, it would make, I, I kind of wish it was, but they, they were kind of two separate pieces. Well, it worked out either way. Worked um, out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Steve, walk us back a little bit. So you, this first spec sale, right? It's funny, even just hearing you talk about it, it feels like a career from a decade ago. Do you like, I can't, sure. I, have, I don't know that we've said the phrase spec sale on this podcast, even. Do you know oh, what wow. I mean? Yeah. It's like a thing that like happened so frequently, you know, in the 90s and sure. early 2000s and kind of, you know, has fallen off the map as we seem it seems like we were only making marvel movies and star wars movies now. yeah so so walk us through those early steps towards that initial sale okay yeah and also that sale was frankly small enough that it wasn't a quit your day job um type of sale it was actually a yeah i mean it, it made a big difference it actually allowed me to help finance monsters the short film instead of hawaii we're, we're going exactly to make yeah, I, was, I was single at the time it was yeah. an easier decision um <laughs> So that, you know, Michael and I just ever since film school, um, we're just writing script after script and, you know, finding some incremental success. Like we, uh, you know, several, you know, it, here's what I'll say. We, we did not strike gold early. Like we, we, there was many years that went by in many scripts. I think the first time we made money on it, I want to say was our 12th screenplay. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know how many years, but it was probably, I don't know, maybe nine years out of film school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what were you doing um, while to survive while you were writing? All different jobs. So I was I was an assistant initially. Um, I was an assistant to like a producer, to a television director, to a reality TV producer. Wasn't the greatest assistant. I kind of just mm-hmm. did just enough to get by. Um, and then I worked as an editor, an assistant editor in reality TV, like working mm-hmm. a lot of like night shift jobs. Um, met some cool people, worked on some interesting stuff, some terrible stuff. Um, and then I worked as a commercial treatment writer Mm -hmm. just for different commercial production companies around town and for different, um, directors and producers and, you know, some combination of all of those at at times. And we found some incremental success in screenwriting. Like we got representation and, and gradually got better representation. And it was just that 12th script, um, that finally, you know, broke through in a way that we made some money off of it. But even then it was, it was still a struggle for a couple more years. We had another script, make the blacklist. Um, <laughs> Wait, was the so 12th I, script, was that on the blacklist? No, it wasn't actually. It, it missed it by like one vote, <laughs> which is heartbreaking at the time because that <laughs> would have been a huge deal, you know? And had you, had you had a script on the blacklist before that? No, no, not till after the. Uh, I think the script we wrote after that was our first blacklist script. What What was your twelfth script? What was the concept? The, the oh, first one uh, God, I haven't pitched this one in a while. It's called On Your Doorstep, and it's about this woman in this like secluded area who there's this like pounding and screaming at her front door in the middle of the night, and it's this terrified teenage like girl who's 17 years old or so. And she's just screaming and wanting to be let in the house. And she looks like she's just like high out of her mind. And the woman just like calls the cops as there's some crazy girl out here. And the girl runs into the woods, doesn't see her again. A few days later, the woman finds a picture of the girl on a missing person website where she 
was abducted over five years ago from a town over a hundred miles away and no one's seen her since. And she just saw this girl on her doorstep because she lives in this secluded little area where there's only a few houses. She starts to think the girl's coming from one of her neighbor's houses and starts like a rear window investigation into her little neighborhood to find out which one could have been holding this missing girl. And it has kind of like a, should have been yeah. on the blacklist. It's pretty good. No, thank you. Pretty thank good. you guys. Thank you. Um, it's dark and creepy. We write blood chilling. We write happier stuff too, by the way, but <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> just not, just not that one or cabin, I guess. But so that's, yeah. that's like so high concept and like, you know, um, you, you can pitch that and I could see sure. M night, you know, directing well, you, that or, or I can see, see the trailer, small, like hundred thousand yeah. dollar version yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah. and to me, right. That's like high concept where like the concept can be the star of this, right. It's not like sure. a Will Ferrell vehicle. It's a, uh, we it's tried it. to get Will for it and he just, he never called <laughs> us back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so is that something that you were trying to a- actively do as like, were you trying to come up with concepts like that were just really catchy and hooky on their own? Like, you know, in the, the same vein as like a quiet place or were you trying everything? Like, were you adapting books coming up, like writing personal sure. stories? Like I'm trying to, um, how did you find yeah. the thing that, that worked for you all? I, th- we've always been pretty concept driven, uh, and trying to find some personal component in it. Our earlier stuff, I don't think had any personal components. They were just concept driven and probably to their detriment. But in the last few years, usually with, with Michael and I, we lead with the concept first and then try to find the personal connection as we dive mm-hmm. into it, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of adapting books, it's hard to adapt books when you're first starting out because you've got to somehow convince an author to let you do it. So unless you know the author personally, not impossible, but hard. Um, right. Or you, I, you get know, all the worst I, books. I do happen to know. I, I happen to know a writer who uh, he dug up kind of this book from like the seventies that had won some sci-fi awards. <laughs> he got the rights to that, and that ended up on the blacklist as well. Steve, do you know who I'm talking about? <laughs> I think I think you're talking about Harry's All Night Hamburgers, right? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that was that was a script that actually allowed us to do this full time, yeah. uh, and that was Harry's was a short story that won the Hugo Award in 1987, and I found it. And at that point, again, we'd had some incremental success. We'd been on the blacklist. We'd we'd sold one script. We'd been hired to write a TV pilot, but all pretty. I mean. In in terms of like income wise, it was pretty small stuff. You I want to stress your day that. Job, day Not job at in all. a literal way. Yeah. Were you yeah, in the WGA at that point? We had just gotten into the WGA, but I we got into the WGA, but but didn't qualify for health insurance because we weren't mm-hmm. making enough to mm-hmm. clear their threshold. So like we we'd gotten into the guild by like the skin of our teeth. Uh, so had screeners, but no health insurance. Mm-hmm. And Harry's was a short story I found that just hit hit us like a lightning bolt. And it's really just this wonderfully crafted short story, but it's really just a jumping off point for a feature. And yeah, we were able to, we just fanboy emailed the author, got the rights adapted on spec. And that was like the dream. When you say got yeah. the rights, did you pay for them or did you just ask them if we, you could? So we got, we used the shopping agreement. So we had a period of time to, to write the script and then try to shop it and sell it. It wasn't an I mean, we could go into like the, the differences of like a shopping agreement and an option, but like we basically what a shopping agreement is, is, is like you and the author or the rights holder, you, you kind of link arms legally. Like you agree that if there's an interested party, you both make separate deals. There's a mm-hmm. rights deal for the author. There's a script deal for us. And neither of you could move forward without the other for that period of time. Whereas an option, you like pre-negotiate all the different 
prices, like purchase prices. And like, mm-hmm. as a writer, as a director, I find shopping agreements just be easier to mm-hmm. to do. But mm-hmm. but Harry's and was so there's yeah. usually no money exchanged for a shopping. There could agreement. be no no there could be some money. It really just depends on the situation, you know. Um, but it's not gonna. It shouldn't be money that like breaks your bank because it's really. The yeah, investment it's dating yeah. versus marriage, basically. There it is. is. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Harry's was that dream spec scenario where it went out on a Tuesday and um, by Friday, three studios were bidding on it and it mm-hmm. sold by Friday night. But again, that was our 17th screenplay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I know this because someone asked me after that, I actually counted them up. And so it was just a lot of attrition, a lot of rejection. Like, uh, and, you pull out yeah. the, the, the box. Oh, yeah, the yeah, box. exactly. In the old One, days, it would have been a box. Yeah, sure, exactly. Yeah. Was yeah. there ever, when you sell your 17th screenplay, <laughs> is there interest in like screenplay number six or Oh, 12? sure. No, there was. We, we've optioned a couple since there were previous scripts. Uh, that, that's great. That's really nice yeah. to know, though, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Absolutely. you know, you, you pull out the shoebox and, and dust them all off. Yeah, and by the way, it's not like script one through three like those are terrible sure, but like some sure. of the more recent ones that were like close but no cigar have have gotten a new life um and this uh, is scripts that you co-wrote 17 scripts that you've written yeah. with michael sherman yep H- have you written any on your own or were you writing Just, I've, written a, I've written some short films on my own over the years but like no we pretty much we co- we co-wrote a 480 thesis film at usc together that i directed and just really bonded over that experience, like in this classic film school story that I'm sure you guys experienced. Something like are, are like uh, the thesis projects, basically like the, yeah, it's yeah. the big undergrad project. And you felt so, like you were finishing each other's sandwiches. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it was the first day of production and we were shooting at what we were making look like a hospital and as we were leaving and had all the sh- i had all the shots planned for the next day and as we're leaving the door is locking behind us one of the producers was like oh by the way we didn't get a permit for the second floor tomorrow and everything was designed for that so i had to mm-hmm. redesign everything that you know you've been going 14 hours on a student film you've got to be up in the morning and i had to redesign all the shots and re- re- redesign everything you know for a new location without being able to access the location or Michael, who wasn't even in the class, just stayed up for hours with me and was like, help me, th- got me through it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just like someone who will like be with you in the war when, when things are going wrong. It was just an incredible display of like camaraderie and work ethic and, and kind of bonded us together. Like, okay, this guy will always be there. That's awesome. And do you feel like your, your sense of taste needs to be the same also? There's, it's like a Venn diagram, right? There are certain stories that I like more than him and certain stories that he likes more than me. So the benefits of a writing partnership is two brains are better than one, right? You have two different sets of imaginations that when combined help, should create something better than either of you can individually. The drawback is there are just some stories that like I am more into and he is more into that we're just not going to agree to pursue together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, and this happens not infrequently, but there's enough stuff in the middle that we both really love and we know we could we could nail together and also just when you're in sync working with someone the writing goes so much faster like Mm -hmm. so much faster um especially once you've done a few together and do you have different strengths like is one better with dialogue one better with descriptions structure i don't know if we're if either of us are better or worse at like specific screenwriting things but what 
what either of us would describe is Michael's very logic oriented. Like things have to make sense. Things have to plausibly, you know, connect mm. the, connect the dots from one to another. Nothing that will ever pull you out of the movie. Like really maintaining that consistency throughout where I'm very much emotion based. And it's always like, what is the audience feeling? Like what, what is happening right now? And that's not to say like, I'm a hundred percent emotion. He's a hundred percent logic, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but when in doubt, we're going to lean in those directions. Sure. And, and I think that we're very different people in a good way and very different personalities. And I so, think that helps. I want to dig in on when you disagree a little bit, right? Is sure. it as simple as like, Oh, I, you know, I found this great short story. Oh, I'm not feeling it. Let's move on. Talk to us about, you know, I guess maybe the way over 17 screenplays you've come to deal with disagreements, right? Because a writing partnership is not unlike a marriage, right? Especially at this point. But I think kind of from the beginning, if you two were to split off and do different things, if you were like, hey, I'm going to do my own thing for a minute, you know, there are people who uh, would be like, well, we don't know who wrote what or whatever, you know, your sure. identity kind of fractures a little bit, yeah, right? yeah. you know, you're committed to each other, mm -hmm. right? That's a high pressure sort of situation, especially sure. now that you've spent, you know, years and years and years together. What do you do when you don't agree on a scene level or on a project level? Sure. Well, on a project level, I, one thing I'll say is that we're much better at it now than we were straight out of film school. When sure. you're in your yeah, early 20. mid twenties, yeah. you're yeah, yeah. probably not the best communicator in a lot of senses. And I, and I think most of our, you know, harsher disagreements happen early on, but I would say on a project level, it's very hard to twist someone's arm into writing something for free. So mm -hmm. sure. if it's a paid assignment, I think either of us could bend a lot more because then it just becomes a job and hopefully it's a cool job, but like, if it's a spec script, there have been times in our early scripts that like maybe I really talked him into one or maybe he talked me into one. None of those turned out all that great, I'll say. Mm -hmm. And I think okay. that's the reason why, because one of the, like you don't want a spec script to feel like a job. That's something you're choosing to do. So I think there's kind of two situations uh, with the project. You could try to like, maybe someone's just not seen it and you're just trying to like, keep digging in and pitching it or, or, or someone's just bumping on certain things you have to walk, work through. And then there's someone who's just, there's the situations where like, you're just not feeling it on a conceptual level. And, and those, unfortunately, you kind of just eventually let go. Um, mm -hmm. And there aren't really any that I miss. I probably wouldn't even remember most of those on a scene level, I think is more interesting because what we've developed over the years is that if I want a, and Michael wants B sometimes one of us will just convince the other. One of us will just be more impassioned. The other one will be like, you know what? Like, I, I trust you. You feel you feel you're more you care about this issue more than I do. I'm I'm game. Mm -hmm. But other times we're both passionate and we both think we're right. And what we recognize and what we try to recognize as quickly as possible, like, okay, we gotta beat both ideas. We need mm -hmm. a C. And it's not a meet in the middle. It's because I don't think that works. It's not a dual compromise. Idea C has to be better than either of our individual ideas. And that is where I think the strength of a writing partnership comes mm. because it's an idea that neither one of us would have arrived to individually. Yeah, I love that. It, you yeah. know, it makes me think of, uh, are we had the radio silence guys on. They did the, sure. the film Ready or Not and it's yeah, they're yeah. A, a trio. Yeah. And so uh, 
like the DGA didn't even know like what to do with them. Exactly. <laughs> what to do with them? That's funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and their rule was like, you just have to beat the idea basically. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like you have to convince me whoever's most passionate tends to win. But I love this idea of forcing yourself to come up with something even better rather than compromising. I think that rings, rings true to me for sure. Something that's, that's been happening. I'm working on a project right now with the writing partner and something that happens a lot is like, she'll have an idea that I don't love, or I'll have an idea that she doesn't love, but we'll say, well, let's just put that in for now and keep moving forward. Cause sometimes you don't like something, but you don't have a, you can't beat it necessarily. Mm-hmm. Do you ever do that? Do you say, okay, well, we'll, we'll go with that for now. But in the back of my mind, I'm going to be trying to come up with something that will beat it. I think Michael's better at that than I am. <laughs> I, I think like, I, I think he's better at like a placeholder idea where I will like, I, I think I struggle more if I don't feel confident in something, at least for that draft. But at, at the same time, like I've never met other writing teams that worked identical to each other. So it's really mm-hmm. just like what works for someone's individual process. I mean, there are things that we do that would not make sense for another uh, another writing team. Like we never write in the same room, um, you oh, know, and we usually are working on two projects at once where I'm writing one, oh. he's writing the other, and we're switching pages back and forth. Walk us through a day then. What does what sure. a writing day look like? What we tend to do is we'll, we'll spend several days or even uh, you know a week or two like just brainstorming, just getting a bunch of ideas out there, you know, just and the exploratory. Like a, a Google Doc or something? How do you... A Google Doc, yeah. No, nothing fancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and is that in real time, though? Or are you... Yes. Sorry, it's a combination. It's both in real time, but also what it, what it, we think is important is also to separate to like mm-hmm. just do like your own individual brainstorming because there's there's a little bit less pressure and you don't have like the awkward long silences when neither of you has an idea. Mm-hmm. So um, at that point, then we will outline like the big picture, like the beginning, the ending, the end of Act One, the end of Act Two. Like make sure we know like the big signpost. And what we've started doing the last couple of years, which I think is really helpful. We used to write these elaborate, like 20 page outlines. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you'd be on like page seven and be like, this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're trying to minimize that. So we'll outline act one, just act one and do like a test run and try and get act one to a pretty good place. Then we'll outline in between act one and the midpoint <clears throat> and do the same thing. And the same thing between midpoint and the back two and the same thing and the back two to the ending. So we're, and what that, mm-hmm. what's cool about that to us is it's kind of a happy medium of outlining and screenwriting where you're not spending forever outlining the whole thing only to realize mm-hmm. you're completely wrong. Yeah. And, but also you're not jumping in blindly without any kind of foundation under you. So that's, that's what Wait, works for us. Are you suggesting you're going to screenplay level for act one before yeah. you start outlining yeah. the second? Yeah. Now we'll know where the story's going. We'll know what the mm-hmm. end is. We'll know what the, like the big picture is. So we, we have a, and by that, I don't mean not, not just like a conceptual ending, like we'll know what the ending is. Uh, but yeah, we'll go into screenplay level just for act one and then we'll outline the next section. And the best case scenario is to have two scripts writing at once. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes we'll break up sequences in an existing script where he'll start a little later and I'll start at the beginning. But yeah, well, well, sometimes mm-hmm. we'll have two scripts going at once and different speeds, but try and get as yeah. much progress as possible. You know, I, I love this conversation because I haven't really thought through the mechanics. Uh, like I thought through the mechanics of like a writing partnership if you're in, you know, working on top of one another scene by scene. But I love sure. this idea of trading back and forth. But I, I wonder 
personally, my process I've realized if I outline too much, I just end up lost in the weeds. Like mm-hmm. that that spark, that magic is gone, and I just end up hating it and it never gets written, basically. Right. Whereas if I do something closer to what you're talking about, where you're kind of like you give it a a little bit of a road test before you go through every single beat. Um, but part of that is so that I find those moments of inspiration, those aha moments that you didn't see coming, but then mm-hmm. once it's under your fingertips, you know, you're surprising yourself. Yeah. Um, but I'm not accountable to another person who's perhaps writing 10 pages ahead of me. Like what happens when you're like, Oh, I wasn't thinking of the, I didn't realize we were headed this way, but like, what do you think of this? Is it that simple or like, you know, when you're writing out a sequence, you know, with someone else whose brain isn't yours, what, what do you do? I guess is what I'm the, saying. The best thing is communication is if you want to go off script and by off script, I mean like off outline in a significant mm-hmm. way, this happens not infrequently. It's usually for us. It's like call the other person mm-hmm. like, Hey, I've got the, and rather than spending like a day or two on this scene and the other person going like WTF, what do you, what, what is sure. this? Yeah, call yeah. And be like, Hey, you know, I know we were talking about this way, but I had this idea. What if we did it like this? You walk them through mm-hmm. it and you bounce mm-hmm. it back and forth. And then the, the hope is that when you send something to the other person, there aren't any big surprises in a bad way. Like there's always little surprises, but then sure. the scene, like, Oh, I didn't think we would hit that, that moment or, Oh, that's a cool, mm-hmm. I, like I didn't see that, that line coming or, or the way you mm-hmm. did that visual or something, but like not crazy surprises sure, where you just, sure. <laughs> you know, really went, sure. went off road. Um, so yeah. it's really just, and that's something we've learned over the years. Like if I'm writing scenes, I'll, I'll probably be, calling him a couple times a day to just run through things. Mm-hmm. And also when things aren't working, right? Cause you've got this plan and they're like, Hey, this isn't working. Mm-hmm. I don't have an idea for how to fix it. Let's talk through it. I wanted to revisit a couple things you mentioned, uh, because I'm, sure. I want to steal your brain. So you said that uh, a lot of your screenplays are concept driven and that you'll find the personal connection later once you have the concept. And you gave us an example of one of your movies, the 12th one, the first one that sold Sure. about the the missing girl that, that knocked at the door. How do you take a story like that and apply like a personal connection mm-hmm. to it? Because I, like right now I'm working on this thing and the relationships, a lot of them are based on things that we've seen, but we're trying to, to kind of go one level deeper and, and figure out why we're the ones that need to tell the story. Absolutely. And I'm curious how you kind of find that. I'd say that that one was... A lot of times it's a thematic connection. It's not a plot connection, right? Mm Because I don't know if any of our stories I I could identify with in a plot sense, right? Mm -hmm. They're just too... Sure, you're not an alien. Right, yeah. And that last time I checked. Yeah, yeah. So in that one, there there was... This goes back a number of years, but but there were feelings of like guilt and confession and like big themes like that that I was able to to just find a personal connection to. So it's not like a one to one. It's more finding that. It's finding something like in the theme and the emotion that that you relate to. And sometimes it's unexpected. You were kind of implying that the scripts got better once you started doing this. Absolutely, right? because they they the earlier ones just kind of felt hollow. Because like a mm-hmm. con, like a concept driven story, like we we've seen these movies, right? Like they're they're almost like candy, right? Like, right? Like so, you, mm-hmm. you, and, but there's not a lot of umph to them. And I think an audience could tell. And also, it's finding a substitution. Sometimes you might be telling a story about ghosts 
or aliens, mm-hmm. but maybe to you, it's actually a story about mental illness. Sure. sure. Now it doesn't have, the audience does not need to take that away from, from the movie. They don't have to know that, but it could be a metaphor for something deeply, per, or, or it's about trauma or it's about, you know, a death of, of a loved one, but, mm-hmm. but you're burying it within a genre concept. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and Pixar you, is so amazing. Like the Monsters yeah. Inc. is about fatherhood. Sure. Yeah. But do you find that that personal connection ever helps inform what the ending should be? The second part of that question is also, do you find that that personal connection helps when you pitch the project? You know, a lot of times we're trained to pitch. And I, my, my other barely related question is how your treatment writing experience helped you become, if it helped you become a better pitcher. But, you know, in commercials, it's like, oh, this is about ketchup. You know, as a kid, I used to grow up eating ketchup all the time. (laughs) Like that, like finding that personal connection right off the bat um, is just something that I think we're trained to do when we are trying to sell. It is more literal. It is like, oh, man, I grew up on Heinz. Guys, I'm so excited on this one. Like (laughs) I remember writing these sentences. Yeah, exactly. Uh, (laughs) Okay, so just to take those one at a time, personal connection, does it help with the ending? It could. Some of this stuff is subconscious, too, to be honest, where it's it's it's. A lot of times I, there was one script I wrote that I didn't realize what the personal connection was till we finished it. It just wasn't, it was actually very intense for me, but it's more for us. What informs the ending is, is honestly more theme and having like a theme that you believe in and trying to, and that's something we've learned more over the years to try and the earlier in the process, we could coalesce around a theme for a script, the fewer drafts we'll have to do. Oh, interesting. Um, when we're really searching for theme, and by the way, it's never one draft with us, but because sometimes we'll have a theme that's just not good enough after the first draft, but, but at least taking a real stab of like, what is this film really about? Do you know that before you finish the first draft or is that yes. something that Yes, comes? but it's not, but it changes usually. Mm-hmm. Usually what we have what the theme is for the first draft doesn't survive to the second draft. And we kind of just know, like, well, it doesn't mean we're not going to try. It would be easier when it is. But in our, in our experiences, it's usually like the theme gets hopefully a little bit just more refined uh, mm-hmm. in, in draft to draft. And to me, a theme isn't like, like fatherhood or something like that is like, is like a topic to me, but like, what is it saying specifically about? What is the theme in your mind of knock at the cabin? And how did it change, perhaps? It's changed quite a bit. What the book is really about is how fake news could really affect us and get us to do crazy things. That's not what the movie is about at all. <laughs> and I, I say what our drafts uh, of of the script were, were, were something else. And, and what the movie ultimately is, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for night in terms of like, what theme was driving him. But I think, well, actually in a weird way, by giving away the theme of the movie, I'm kind of giving away the ending. So I'm going to, I'm going to back up a little bit on that, but the theme. And in this case is kind of inherent to the tagline um, of like, choose your family or choose humanity. And, and the theme makes a very defined choice in the film Mm -hmm. that he believed in, but to the earlier point, it evolved a lot. There was a version that Paul wrote. There was a version that Michael and I wrote, and there was a version that ended up being made. And there, there are some similarities, a lot of similarities, but the theme definitely evolved. And do you think your best scripts, the ending is kind of directly relevant to that, the theme? Absolutely. Yeah. 
yeah, what I what I consider to be like our our two best scripts, I think also have our probably our most powerful thematic work. And then my second question was about pitching. Yeah. And if you've become a better pitcher because of writing treatments and finding a personal way into stories, if that's part of your process. Yeah, I think I mean commercial treatments is, are more akin to like directing pitching, right? So you're, you're pitching more your your vision of something. And I, I think starting any pitch with a personal connection is really helpful. And, but especially if you get beyond like the topical, like I like ketchup too, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like if you could get into something a little bit deeper, mm-hmm. what it does if someone is pitching something and goes too quickly into plot or too quickly into characters, they're, the people listening don't know who that individual is as much. And I think spending the first couple minutes of a pitch talking about what it, why it connected to you is really important. Mm-hmm. That said, if it's, I actually think for film, we don't like to pitch things. We would always rather write it. I think your chances of success go significantly up if you write the thing. We will pitch on open writing assignments when you're you're pitching on like a big piece of IP or something. But for original material, we haven't done a pitch in a couple of years just because it's what's cool about a screenplay is years could go by. And someone, and this has happened to us, and someone will rediscover something and suddenly it has momentum again. But if it's a pitch and you don't sell it, that's it. It's done. It's no one's going to remember that years from now. Now, in television, pitching is more, more like the, the way to, to set things up in film. Yeah, I would say if it's an original idea, I highly advocate to write, to write it, not pitch it. Yeah, but I mean, writing, obviously, at least in my brain, takes a lot longer than coming up with a pitch but maybe here's the thing though when you're pitching you're pitching your first draft of something because that's all you've got Mm -hmm. at that point and Mm -hmm. at least in my experience by the time you craft the whole pitch and you especially you know if you're taking it to like multiple places and you've scheduled the meetings and you reschedule the meetings and like Mm -hmm. it takes a while in all that time in our experience you could usually maybe get a draft done and if you're pitching your first draft it's kind of equal at that point and i don't know i think the extra couple months ultimately to write the thing will just pay dividends even though it is more daunting i agree with that but if it's something you control if it's original also i just find writing to be way more fun than pitching yeah i love that i love that it, well and also you know um to your point about scheduling the meetings and all that stuff you know your team is sending your work around so effectively you're taking 30 meetings all at once over the weekend. You know what I mean? Sure. Like you're, it's not like you have to have FaceTime with every single person who's reading your screenplay. Not, not at all. Uh, yeah. You could go to a whole bunch of places at once. And you know, the great thing about this is you only need one. Yes. Yeah. Right. You could, you could get those 29 yos, no's for that one. Yes. And it's all, it's all worth it then. Yeah. So the three yeses make for a much Oh yes, that's that's uh, yeah, a rare situation, but was very cool. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I think you you know the way you described your twelfth screenplay, which I forgot the name of it. uh, But I thought you know that that did sound like a great pitch to me. Oh, thank you. Well, here's the: I think it is really important to be able to distill an idea, like whatever you're working on, into like that thirty second or less Mm -hmm. version. Like the elevator pitch you think is. I think that's value. crucial. I think that's what you bring up in meetings. I think that's when you're having a coffee or a drink with someone and say what you're working on being able to, and where this was trained in me, 
when I first finished college, I was better at cold calling people and convincing them to read our screenplay than I was at actually writing a screenplay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but I would got used to just cold calling someone, and you just you had so little time. You had to you had to excite them about an idea before they realize this was an unsolicited phone call and mm-hmm. you're an un- unrepresented writer and they hang up on you. So you had like that precious window to get their attention and make them take a chance Wait, on so you. So you were literally just calling production companies and all the time development execs. Wow. All the time. Yeah. Did management companies. Uh, to a degree. I mean, it, it didn't not work. I, I would say like it, it we, what I'll say is like, it got us read by places, but our mm-hmm. scripts weren't good enough at the time. Right. But right. the, but it did get us read. Right. So it's like the, the cold call can't guarantee that something good is going to happen on the other end. But the only goal of that was to get someone to read something. So in that sense, it did work. Yeah. Walk us through like literally you, you hop on IMDb pro and you're looking up different companies and then you find their phone number and just yeah. call the, the front office and say, Hey, my name is Steve. I've got a screenplay that you're going to no, love. I, I, I developed this strategy. I get, I was like 23, yeah. 23, 24 at this time. You, you're blowing my mind though. This is yeah. wild to me. My that strategy is was, yeah. Of a yeah. Being. if I was calling yeah. Matt and Matt and Lowe's office and I knew yeah. you were a producer or an, or a manager Matt and Lowe's putting his assistant voice on mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um it's hard to do with agents frankly just because i think they're just more more attuned to this but if you go after like smaller management companies or smaller production companies like you're not going to get steven spielberg on the phone but if i was calling your office and your assistant picked up and said matt Enlow's office i would just say hey is he in and they'd be like <laughs> what and they're like who is this i'm like and i would say oh it's steve and you would just feel the panic on oh, the other God. end. They're like, who's Steve? Steve who? Like, they don't know. And, they're, and then they're giving like, me flashbacks. It's really, this is tra- this quite is like cruel. In Tarantino. And then like they would say, level. right? And then they would say, Steve who? And I'd be like, Desmond? Like, like kind of, <laughs> and again. And did, then, you, did you really do this? Yeah, I did this all the time. I, I, and I, I would do this like. 50 times like in a row and, and, no by the way, and some people would just be like screw off dude and like yeah, rightfully yeah. so oh, but then so the funny. boss would get on and then you had to be real right and then sure. you had to have like the quick pitch so at that point i would say hey my name's steve i just graduated from usc film school i have a script about blah 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 mm-hmm. like really quick would love to send it mm-hmm. to your way to see for you to check out and some people would hang up and some mm-hmm. people would be amused that you got past their assistant mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and some people would be into the idea. And like, like it, I don't know, like it, it, it did not work any, every time for instance, but even then it's like, you've got to make 50 calls to get 10 to 20 people to agree to read it. And of the 10 mm-hmm. to 20 people who agree to read it, maybe only five to seven actually read it. And maybe two of them actually like it. So it's like, mm-hmm. it's all a numbers game that you break, but you've got to go through those that high quantity uh, mm-hmm. to, to try and get there. Yeah. Uh-huh, it's not the boy. best way to do it, but it works at a time when you don't have connections or relationships. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, and I wonder also now awesome. it's so awesome. <laughs> I had no idea. You did that. That's so great. Um, I think when we were first, when we first graduated, it was still a phone business, mm-hmm. right? You would, the, the idea of rolling calls and all of that stuff was a thing. I wonder if that would still work. Maybe. I think you could, you could also do like a, just a well-crafted emailing. For instance, yeah. as proof this works, uh, John Zazerny, who's a manager, he's a friend of mine, uh, not my manager, but, but a great his, manager. 
his Twitter feed. Right? Yeah, he's yeah. terrific. The I number it multiple times. The number one blacklist script. Not I, I want to say of like two years ago, maybe three years ago. It was 2020. The 2020 number one blacklist script he received as a cold query letter. And he agreed awesome. to read it and he represented yeah. the person and ended up being the number one blacklist script that year. So like it yeah. can work, you, but you, I'm going to guess that writer sent that query letter to a, a lot of reps and John gave her a chance and worked out really well for both of them. Circling back to your point about being able to pitch your screenplay. Um, it's not like your reps are like, Hey, here's Steve's new script attached pdf good to go right like you still have to have that blurb Mm -hmm. you know there still has to be a way in for people so whether that's in text in an email or on the phone or whatever like giving people equipping your team with the concise way to explain what's awesome about your movie i think is always going to be important it's crucial yeah i mean the log line will go in every email but also beyond just the log line your reps have to know how to pitch it over the phone they've got to be able to do that 30 second or less pitch and sometimes we craft it with them and sometimes they just got it themselves but like i I mean there'll be moments where like our agent will be like okay cool i know how to pitch this i know how to pitch this Mm -hmm. like one it's important that they get it because they are the ones who are going to have to go you know have you um have you ever had an instance where maybe not your current reps, but where they didn't get it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. and, and, and fortunately not with our current reps, we were very lucky who were with, uh, APA and entertainment 360, but yeah, we, we have definitely had previous reps who, um, I don't want to call anyone out because everyone, it's just all subjective sure. opinions, but yeah. like, yeah, who just didn't get something we were working on or, yeah. or beyond that didn't line up with where we want to go in our careers and what steps we want to take. Uh, what's great about our reps now is they're not just pushing us to take like mm-hmm. work. They, yeah. They, they yeah. really believe in what we want to do and who we want to be. Even if that sometimes means, yeah, you want, you have to write the smaller spec cause you want to direct it. Like that's mm-hmm. a lot of reps wouldn't want to hear that. They'd much rather you take a studio assignment where they get a much bigger commission, but like playing the long game and having reps who believe in your long game, it has just been instrumental. So I want to I want to dig in on the the spec and and your directing and and that in a minute. But just sure. circling back, uh, one more question about process in the partnership. It sounds like you guys have a lot of different ideas and different projects going. Is it just that you're brainstorming in between assignments and things? How how do you regulate um, the process of the new idea versus the the current work? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's. It's it's a tough balance in a good way, but like we've done a few assignments in a row and literally just today we're like, oh, we finally have a period of time where we could just develop original material again. And when you're working on deadlines, it's it's harder to do that, not because you don't have the time to discuss it, but also like your, your brain kind of gets full. I, I feel there, there's always room for like kernel ideas, but for me at least it's hard to like be fully developing too many things at the same time i i just mm-hmm. i, I kind of hit a max so i think it's just finding the time and also just calling like on occasion when those those lightning bolt ideas do land or you find a, a book or a short story that you really love just calling the other person and you know seeing how it lands like like we're each other's first audience i'll, mm-hmm. I'll tell you this what makes us land on an idea though we imagine writing a first draft of something 
and putting our heart and soul into it and then sending it out to like five or so friends and colleagues for feedback. And then they tear it apart and worse, they're right. Sure. Okay. We think about this in advance and the key is knowing this will probably happen because no matter what we do, usually our first drafts aren't great and we'll get harsh feedback. Do we love the premise enough mm-hmm. that we're going to keep going? You're going to weather that. that yeah. You're going to weather that storm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. You're going to get beat down in yeah. a way that's healthy <laughs> yeah, and, sure. and keep going. And a lot of our earlier scripts, I think the reason there was such a high number was they would be abandoned after first drafts because mm-hmm. we couldn't wait. We're like, oh yeah, it's just not that good. These notes are right. It's just, eh, this mm-hmm. isn't that good. Let's mm-hmm. just let's move on to the next shiny thing. It's a blessing and a curse because you have twice as many shiny ideas, right? Sure. But but you also have a partner who can maybe help stay the course and you know put the blinders on when you need to. Absolutely. My final question is about your process. Where do you write? Tell us a little bit about like how you you kind of create your space to be productive, or are you the type of person that could just like write anywhere for as short a time as possible on it. it it's always yeah, I, I'm pretty, I, I think basic in this sense. I just, I have like a, a little office at my wife and I's place and, and yeah, I just, it's, it's more just the repetition of doing it, you know, every day, but like, I've never been a good morning person. Mike, Michael is a terrific morning person. I'm, I'm not at all. I'm, I'm inconveniently at my best in like the afternoon. So I'm neither a morning nor a night person. So I get started you know, nine thirty or ten in the morning, because again, I, again, I just don't do great uh, before that. And you know, I really, and then I'll, I, I treat it kind of like a nine, like a like a ten to six essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean I'm writing every minute by any means, but like I usually start to hit my stride from like lunchtime onwards, uh, where the morning's a little bit more of a slog. Do you like turn off your emails and things like that? No, I should. I, I try to. I, I try, and I, and if you can do that successfully. That's phenomenal. Um, with I've taken on more and more like produce producing roles too on stuff, and also like d- being attached to direct to film that I can't like step away from email completely for like uh, like. Uh, but but I've been trying to scale back on it. I would say the two things I do though. I always listen to music and always film scores. Never music with the lyrics because it'll mm-hmm. distract. What's your me, number but- one go to film score? It depends on the script. So I kind of, I score the screenplay from like mm-hmm. previous, mm-hmm. from previous soundtracks. And so with Cabin, I think we were, I was listening to Silence of the Lambs, a Swedish version of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I think I listened mm-hmm. to The Invitation, but with other scripts like Harry Samager's, I was listening to like Back to the Future, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it just mm-hmm. depends on the, t- but something that is tonally in line with your screenplay. And then what I also do is I, I find the screenplay format to be a little daunting and cumbersome when you're starting there. And I just have like a Microsoft Word doc open or pages, whatever someone mm-hmm. uses. And I use it as like my scratch doc where I just like rough in dialogue and rough in like very, I'm talking like basic, basic description, like, you know, he leaves the room mm-hmm. or something like, like that's just a basic bad version of it, but just to get a rough version. And for some reason, looking at it in a Word doc takes the pressure off of doing it right. Mm-hmm. And you could just be a little rougher, a little sloppier. And then once it's in a pretty good place there, then I go into the screenplay file and actually write the scene. You know, it's funny. I feel like I've heard that a handful of times. And um, I feel like the last few years has been me relearning my initial process. Sure. I feel like I I was just like in final draft for 
the first few years. And then I was like, well, you should be outlining more and this and that. And like, like tried to talk myself into the right way to do it. Or, and I realize now, like I just, I fire up final draft only. I'd still sure. kind of do that same thing, but like, yeah. I, I, it's kind of the reverse of what you're saying of like, I find more comfort in, in the auto formatting and stuff. And that program oh, is sure, yeah. crappy and, and clunky in a lot of other ways. You know what I mean? You should, but sure. I, Have you ever, you, I actually prefer fade in for what it's worth. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's like, um, it's not like avid versus premiere. They're not that different from sure, each other. Sure. Well, yeah. you should check out our uh, sponsor arc studios. They have a, a co-writing oh. option that actually would be pretty helpful for you. Oh, cool. But the reason I bring it up is not to talk too much about myself, but it was more like is to just remind people that there's a lot of different ways to do it, basically. Oh, yeah. I mean? And also your process evolves, right? Like yeah. the way I write now is not the way I wrote a couple of years ago. And I think that's important to constantly evaluate your process and what's working for you and what's not. I, I think that's how we get better. We kind of challenge like. Yeah, I used to like kick myself for not starting writing at like eight or nine in the morning. Eventually, I just accepted sure. I'm just not good at that. Sure, yeah. you're the a other one thing, PM guy. I love it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But the the other thing I would say is, I acknowledge that on any new project, the first day is going to be crappy and unproductive. Mm. I'll be lucky to write one page on day one. But knowing that takes the pressure off, mm-hmm. and it's just like, and I just refer to it internally as like, oh, it's it's my you know, my shitty day one. That's mm-hmm. just what it is. And then day two is fine at that point but it it makes the blank page a little less daunting what is a regular solid day not a, not a stellar day but like just like a, oh we i did my job today page count wise look like for you. like five ish I, I say five yeah. to six yeah, yeah i i think though i have this belief that has no data to back it up i think we get better on the bad days the days that we have to muscle through it and maybe you're hoping for five or six pages, you only end up with two or three or one, but you still did it. You still, Mm -hmm. you still went to it and, and put in those hours to me, to me, that's the difference of, of of finding those days and finding some productivity, even when it seems like the world's working against you. I like that. A lot of your process is about reducing pressure. (laughs) It's supposed to be fun, right? I mean, it, it, it really should be, though, because especially yeah. on the spec, it's like we're choosing to do something for free and we're not doing other things with our time. Like, mm-hmm. there's got to be the joy factor is really important uh, for me. Before we hop into unpaid endorsements, Steve, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but uh, I do want to talk a little bit about your directing, right? Because sure. you've been a oh, working screenwriter for a long time, but since before all of that, you know, you were one of those people who grew up wanting to be a director, right? Like in your bio, you said you dressed up like a director for Halloween in second grade, right? For um, career career fair. Career yeah. fair, pardon <laughs> me, pardon me. So talk to us about, now you've got some heat, right? You're known as a screenwriter, things are going well, but you are also attached as a director on some things. Talk, talk to us about the, sure. the push and pull of how that works in your life. Well, I was, and I can laugh about this now, I was so naive when I finished film school that, I kid you not, like I was mostly directing in college. Like the only writing I did was for the short films that I was directing. And I graduated from from film school. My dad, who comes from like the corporate accounting world, he's like, you need like a day job. You need like a plan B. You need a way to make your rent before you can become a director. And I said to him like, okay, I thought about it for a minute. I'm like, I'll be a screenwriter. I'll play for the NFL. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Having, yeah. But just naively at 22, having no idea how hard that was. Like, 
And I wrote my Michael and I wrote our first script in four days. And then I reread it on the fifth day. I'm like, this sucks. <laughs> like, and I just had no, I just realized like how tall the mountain was. So kind of just became obsessed with becoming a better writer. And I feel like in a, in a weird way, I'm finally the last couple of years been, been doing the day job. I always sought after, uh, in terms of directing. Yeah. It's so I'm attached to direct the script that we're, we're hoping to shoot in the fall. I mean, as you guys know, nothing is real until it's real. But it has financing. And it's got uh, actually the Quiet Place producer is attached awesome. to it. Congrats, uh, Brad man. Fuller. Thank you. And but yeah, that came. You know, Monsters was like the directing sample, and mm-hmm. but it it it's not like a feature of that. It's a completely different different script. For me, it was writing. In this case, it was based on a book that that Michael and I fell in love with, and similar to Harry's, got the rights adapted on or got a shopping agreement adapted on spec and and then set it up. But it was just. What I struggled with for many years was coming up with concept-driven stories that didn't cost fifty to hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. right? Sure. So you could sell those, you could get hired to write those, but it's very hard to direct those mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, starting out. So I, it, it took a long time for me to start to kind of train my brain to come up with concept ideas that that had more modest budgets, mm-hmm. that that felt more producible, and this book really delivered that. And so, you know, it's, it's something that I'm extremely passionate about, but, but in terms of what we write on spec now, it's really stuff that feels makeable. It's something that I could direct and Michael wants, wants to produce. So something that he could produce and, you know, in a budget sense, you know, in that ideal, like five ish million dollar budget, you know, give or take, but Mm -hmm trying to keep that in mind, trying to not write anything that's cost prohibitive. Whereas the assignment jobs will take sure. Go could for be it. huge yeah. IP projects that had their big studio. Then it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's someone else's adventure on the shoots and ladders movie. There's lots of shoots and lots of ladders. <laughs> we've, yeah. I'm pretty sure we've been sent shoots and ladders. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us the premise for the movie you're attached to direct? Yeah, so it's called the Saturday Night Ghost Club, and it's based on a book of the same name. And it's about it takes place in the '90s, and it's about this 12 year old kid and his uncle, who his uncle is like this eccentric, super charismatic believer in everything. He believes in UFOs and and ghosts and Bigfoot and the Loch Ness monster and and everything, but in a very charming way. And the kid mm-hmm. idolizes his uncle because of this, and two new kids moved to town and the four of them with the uncle as like the leader form their own ghost hunting club where they're going to spend a night going to all the different paranormal sites in their town to try and prove once and for all whether ghosts are real or not. But as they go to these different paranormal sites or supposedly paranormal sites, the kid starts to realize that there's a connective tissue between all the sites that ties to his uncle's past that has to do with ghost in real life like ghost of our of our traumas like ghost mm-hmm. of like things that we've gone through and it's a big coming of age element as this kid grows from believing in the all the fantastical stuff we do as kids to realizing how the world really works and why his uncle is the way he is so we we like to describe it as like stand by me on the backdrop of, of a ghost story uh, that's awesome yeah and, it, and you wrote it as well Wrote the screenplay, yeah. Craig da- Craig Davidson wrote the novel. Well, Steve, come back when uh, when the movie's out. We're Here's very hoping. excited, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knock on wood. Um, do you have a few more minutes to hang out and endorse with us? Of course. Unpaid endorsements. 
so my unpaid endorsement, uh, since we're talking so much about writing, I remember seeing Shane Black on a panel. For some reason, Shane Black talks about his writing day. Just, you know, you write for a minute, then you go take the cigarette break. You write for a little bit longer. You go walk the dog and you're kind of thinking about it the whole time. And talking about process, I used to be a person who would just just try to, you know, bang it out. And, you know, your fingers are bleeding. You're just trying to get muscle through it. And now that I have a child, uh, you know, I got to take the kid for a walk every once in a while, get a little bit of sunlight. And it has changed the way that I process the stories that I'm working on, for sure. Like giving yourself a breather, the Shane Black cigarette break, I like to remind myself of, is great and is productive in a way that like sometimes muscling through doesn't always necessarily have to be. You still got to do the work, everyone. You got to sit back down and get it done. But like taking a breather every once in a while is my unpaid endorsement. But let me ask you real quick, when you take your daughter out for a walk, are you just being silent? She's in the stroller or wherever she's in the she stroller. Is yes. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. you're just walking, thinking because I take my son for a lot of walks and I have a bad habit of maybe putting on a podcast. No podcast. Yeah. 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 And the other the crucial part about this is that you have to have done the initial stretch already you have to have reread the thing in your head yeah you have to plant those seeds so that then you can walk away and water them but if you're if you're just if you start the day and you take your kid for a walk and you got a podcast in nothing's cooking back there do you know what i mean you need to like get in there rage figure out what the problem is you know and then then go for the walk basically steve what you got buddy my unpaid endorsement it, it gets similar thematically is this book I've been reading called, it's a couple years old, not that old, called Essentialism. Uh, by It was a New York Times bestseller by Greg McCown. And I so Essentialism, what I love about it is I'm the type of person who tries to like do a whole lot of things at once. Like I was always like over-involved in high school and college. And what this book, you know, prophesizes and what I've learned over the years is you can't actually do it all. And Mm -hmm. trying to focus on what you love the most and what is essential to getting you to where you want and being able to say no to things. And I I just have found this book to be enormously helpful into channeling um, my day-to-day into just the very basics of what I need to to get to where I, I, I hopefully get to next. So highly recommended essentialism. That's cool. And the sub, the subheading or subtitle, whatever it's called, is the disciplined pursuit of less. Yes, exactly. Um, Kaplan, what you got? Well, I was also inspired by Steve's. I'm, I'm sure Matt, you can guess which part of this conversation I was inspired by, but it, <laughs> it was your hack of getting to talk to people on the phone. Mm-hmm. Sure. The tip and trick. My hack, which I. Our, a previous guest, Tony Franklin, told me about today is we were talking about LinkedIn and how if you're in advertising, that's where all the creative people go. And I never post on, on LinkedIn. I basically only post on Instagram. And he said that he has this huge network on LinkedIn and he gets a lot of work from people there. And I thought, Matt, you might be interested in this. And I said, well, who is the network? Is it just people you've worked with? And he said... A lot of the people are people that I've worked with, but I also just search for anyone with executive producer in their title that lives in Los Angeles and I just add all of them. 
And so <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I tried doing that today. And how'd it go? Yeah. You know, I'm still new to LinkedIn, so my searching skills are not great, mm-hmm. but I probably clicked on like 20 executive producers. I tried to avoid the ones that work, you know, for Imagine Entertainment. For, like sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, film development, more commercial stuff. But just if it was a one word name that sounded like a commercial mm-hmm. production company, I tried yeah. adding them. And I think there's maybe five or six new executive producers that are now <laughs> in my LinkedIn network. There you go. Yeah. And when I post on LinkedIn, my new work, I assume maybe they'll see it. Yeah, I, I can tell you uh, that I think the first two weeks of a fresh LinkedIn relationship is when the algorithm privileges your content. Uh, so I should yeah. have thought of that before I started randomly adding <laughs> Uh, you All know, the there, in there are plenty of other exec producers out there. Yeah, yeah, that, that's yeah. true. And also, I don't think people are posting on LinkedIn in the same quantity as they are any other social network. So I think there's more opportunity. There's, uh, It's less crowded, I guess is what I'm trying Interesting. to say. So, well, Steve, this is so great. How can people stay in touch, keep tabs on all of the awesome goings on that you have? Do you tweet, <laughs> do you Instagram? What, where, where's the world? How can we stay in tune with Steve Desmond? So I'm one of those weirdos who doesn't use social media. I mean, I do have a Facebook page, but I'm, I'm not, um, with the exception of the last couple of weeks for Cabin, I'm not <clears throat> super active on it. So really just Mike and I's website, which is dreamingands.com. Great. Dreaming ants. Yeah, yeah. Like the yes. bug, not like, like the your um, like not the, the relative. Yeah. Yes, yeah, like the like the bug that's dreaming. Awesome. If you have any questions that you want us to send Steve's way or just ask us, uh, you can hit us up across all social media at just shoot it pod or email us for longer questions at just shoot it pod at gmail.com. Leave us an iTunes review. That would be awesome. Uh, that's always very helpful. Or just share the show. It's been a minute since someone's been like, hey, I loved this episode. Why don't you do that? That's what I'm asking for this time around. Forget about iTunes reviews. Um, I'm sure you heard something uh, awesome. Maybe even drop a quote. Quote Steve and then uh, tweet that. That would be awesome. Tag the show. That would be great. I think we'll retweet you. Plenty of nuggets in there. But like I said, we're across all social media at Just Shoot a Pod and I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm on Twitter at Smitey Pileg. I'm on Instagram at OKaplan. And uh, you can just, I think, look up Orin Kaplan Director on LinkedIn and maybe you'll find me. Who knows? <laughs> uh, this episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Our producer is Tyler Small. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And we will catch you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.